Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, and I see the chatters, hi chatters, uh, and you can sign in through your Facebook account or blog, Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. And then following this show, please continue this discussion on AfroGenius.com and the research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook pages. In fact, please like both pages. Well, the topic for tonight is problem solving in genealogical research, strategies and ideas for breaking through your genealogy brick walls. Now, many of you listeners probably will recognize that dealing with brick walls is not the first time that we've talked about this. Do you recall, do you have an artificial brick wall with Robin Smith? Well, please check out that show. And of course, you can't forget So What with Shelley Murphy. Well, the guest for tonight is Mary Tedesco. And she is a professional genealogist, speaker, and author. She is also a host of Genealogy PBS TV series, Genealogy Roadshow Season 2, and the founder of Origins Italy. Mary is the co-author of Tracing Your Italian Ancestors, and this is an 84-page Italian research guide published by Moorheads Magazine. She holds a Bachelor of Arts in Mathematics from Boston University and a Certificate in Genealogical Research from Boston University Center for Professional Education. Well, I know there's so much more I can say about Mary, but I want to just bring her on and just give her a warm welcome. So Mary, welcome to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. Hey, Bernice. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. 
Well, it's just a real pleasure to have you, Mary. And before we even get into talking about just brick walls, tell us a little bit more about yourself and then tell us about what you're doing on Genealogy Roadshow. Absolutely. Well, as you described, I am one of the three hosts on Genealogy Roadshow, and I'm also the founder of Origins Italy, which is a research firm specializing in Italian and Italian-American genealogical research. Now, Bernice, all I have to say about this is I have the best job in the world. I frequently get to travel uh, to Italy to research clients' ancestry, which is just a really a real treat for me. I learn something new every day. Really, Bernice, it's re- fantastic. Oh, you are so lucky. I also know that you traveled to my hometown, New Orleans. We absolutely did. We, we uh, shot two fantastic episodes of Genealogy Roadshow in New Orleans. And I got to tell you, it's by far one of my favorite cities. And I like New Orleans so much when we were filming there that I went back there three weeks later for vacation. I just thought it was such a cool city with such a rich cultural history, just a lot of fun people, great places to eat. Bernice, I couldn't stay away. Oh, yes. Well, I, I know the feeling. I can't stay away either. So I'm, I'm looking forward to going home uh, next week to have some fun in my hometown. Well, wonderful. Well, I know that, I mean, because you're a professional genealogist, you're always faced with, with problems that you're being asked to help solve. So give us, or at least take us through some basic strategies that you have used to solve problems. And then I want to hear about some of the problems. So it's all in your hands. Take us through some strategies. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So Bernice, I have a degree in mathematics. So this kind of inspired, I want to say, this topic for me and also part of my approach in genealogy. I love to be really methodical about it, to break down each of our genealogy research questions into little pieces and then figure out how to solve the the problem. Because in some cases, we can actually look at our genealogy problems as a puzzle. So we might have a jigsaw puzzle with a thousand pieces in the box, and we have to methodically break them down either into sections or into colors or, you know, find a real method to make the pieces make sense and then fit them all back together. So that's kind of one of the ways that I approach genealogy research problems every day, both in client research and also in my personal research. So uh, one of the tips that I always tell people is always have a research plan. You always have to know where you're going. And a good research plan will take you some time to construct because you really want to research each repository you're going to go to if you're creating, say, an on-site research plan to go to Cleveland. So you want to research all the repositories and places in Cleveland that may have a document or a resource that may help you with your genealogical research problem. You can even do this with online research. You can research all of the websites and all of the online collections and databases that may help you. You can really construct a research plan around anything and make it methodical and very, very detailed. And don't be afraid to miss something because you can always go back and add it in later. 
Um, a research plan doesn't have to be perfect, but, you know, as we know, Bernice, half the battle is actually getting started. So once you get started, you can always add to your research plan. Is that something that you also employ in your research, Bernice? I'm sure you do. Absolutely. I always have a research plan. I know where I'm going. I know what I'm looking for. At least I hope I know what I'm looking for. <laughs> <laughs> That's the beauty of research plans, Bernice, is they're always adjustable, right? We can always Absolutely. add something else. <laughs> oh, yes, we can yes, always yes. add something else, which definitely leads to the next point. So say you're researching and you know, you're not really finding what you're looking for and you're focused on one given individual. So many of you have heard of Elizabeth Schoen Mills' Stan Club. So if we're not finding you know, specific information on our ancestor, let's check the friends and family members of the ancestor, the associates of the ancestor, the neighbors. Let's cast a wider net to see if there's any other information. Do you have all the vital records, all the church records, or whatever record the spouses, children, brothers and sisters, other relatives may have created? Uh, the people living next door, say if they're an immigrant and there's another family from that same country next door, they might be from the same place as your ancestor. Have you looked into that? Um, that's just you know, a really um, that invaluable tip that I've found in all types of research that really helps us to solve some of these problems. Okay. Well, yeah, cast in a wider net. That's exactly where we need to, to think and what we need to think about. Exactly. And another thing would be to create a timeline for your ancestor. Now, you can basically do this on any, uh, any computer program that you have, Microsoft Office, Microsoft Word, Excel, even on a piece of paper. So you want to write down all of the information that you know about your ancestor. And doing it on the computer really helps because you can insert you know, things based on year or whatever. I usually do my timelines by year just because it makes sense to me, but you can sort them by person or by group or basically anything you want, anything that would make sense to you. When we have our ancestors in a timeline, sometimes we can see what we're missing. So say, for example, you have a huge timeline and there's something missing from 1930. You might be missing the 1930 census for whatever reason, not necessarily bad research. You might have just forgot. So you can go back in there and insert any documents you may have missed, or maybe you're missing a vital record for one of the kids or, you know, just something. You can go in and fill in the rest of these details and really have that make sense. And the beauty of saving the document is you can always add to it again, just like the research plan. And do you have any particular software that you use to develop your timeline? Well, I personally use Excel, Bernice, because it makes sense for me, again, coming from a mathematics and finance background, I used to use Excel all the time at work. So it's a program that I'm really comfortable with. I love to do, um, you know, I guess the database approach in Excel. I, you know, it, I can navigate it very easily personally. So it just makes sense. And then you can sort everything by year extremely easily, as you know, in Excel. So for me, that's personally what I use, but I encourage people to use whatever will be most comfortable for them. But, uh, you know, a database or spreadsheet kind of format really makes sense to me. How about you, Bernice? Well, I do the same thing. I have an Excel spreadsheet, and that's what I use to document what I have uncovered on my ancestors, and I develop a timeline, yes. 
And Excel is such a powerful tool and, you know, maybe to some extent underutilized by genealogists, but there's a lot of things you can do with Excel to, you know, manipulate and resort and reformat your genealogy data to make it make sense, uh, whether it be sorting by a particular ancestor, a year as we described on a timeline, a surname, uh, you can create these amazing databases. So it's really a powerful tool that I would encourage others in genealogy to either use or just use to a better extent of the capabilities of the program. Right. And so another idea um, for you know breaking through your brick walls that I wanted to discuss, which is a big buzzword today, is genealogy crowdsourcing. Now you and I, Bernice, are all over social media, so I know that we do this pretty much without even trying, but a lot of people, they may or may not realize the power that social media holds and that crowdsourcing in general holds for our genealogical research. I think there's probably a Facebook group for every ethnicity, nationality, uh, you know, any type of group that you may be researching, whether it's a religious group, an immigrant group, any type of group, honestly, there's probably a Facebook genealogy group that would pertain to your ancestor. So post an inquiry, and not just, oh, I'm looking for my ancestor, but I'm looking for John Smith, who was born about 1855, you know, from Columbus, Ohio, you know, and put as many details in there as you possibly can. And in a Facebook post or anything else, you can always go back and edit it if you don't get all the details in there at once. But if you're reaching into a group with 10,000 members, some of these groups, you might be able to find some answers or somebody could give you an idea that would kind of, you know, get a light bulb in you. Also, there's LinkedIn, Google+, Twitter. Um, any type of social media would be fantastic for either promoting the, you know, a research problem you may have or especially a brick wall. Hey, what do you think of this? How can I better improve that? And I think that all of us have done that to one extent or another, right, Bernice? Oh, yes, not only that, but you also have all of these DNA groups and questions go back and forth to the various groups. So you're right, crowdsourcing is definitely uh, something that people need to consider taking advantage of. Exactly. And it's not just on social media. If you have a local genealogy group or society, really consider presenting your problem there. Just say, you know, at the beginning or middle of a meeting, you know, whatever is the appropriate time, just say, can I just take two minutes to ask if anybody's got an idea? And most genealogy groups, I'm sure, because we love about hearing about our friends' research uh, would say absolutely. And hearing what other professionals, or maybe they're not professionals, maybe it's just their passion, their hobby, a fantastic genealogists can give you ideas to really, you know, find a new approach to your research or something that you may not have thought of. There's a great pooling of the minds in genealogy, and we should really utilize just, you know, everybody. It's like a brain trust, Bernice. We should utilize all this brain power to get some of these brick walls broken down. That's right. And you, you might be surprised sitting in a genealogy society meeting and just talking. All of a sudden, you may, you may get your answer. You're right. 
Exactly. There's a lot of brilliant, brilliant genealogists, whether they do it for a profession or as a hobby or, you know, maybe they just do it every so often or once a month. Brilliant people with wonderful ideas and definitely take uh, advantage of these, especially within the context of a genealogical society, Facebook groups. Just be as specific as possible with these inquiries, and you may be surprised at what comes back. So That's right. Really Absolutely. So another idea I had, Bernice, would be to create a formal research report of all your findings to date on your brick wall and just say, you know, I know that some people don't necessarily enjoy, you know, writing formal reports with citations, the whole nine yards, but sometimes when you put it into this context of something formal like you would present to a client or maybe to your family members, you can realize, well, maybe you didn't research, you know, this particular aspect of the ancestor's life or, oh, there's a 10-year chunk missing or, oh, I never resolved what happened to his second wife. Just anything that may come up when you're actually writing out this research report or having a friend or relative read through it and say, hey, I was wondering about this. So there's definitely a lot of power in uh, writing up a formal research report that could make us think of something that we might have forgotten. That's right. And one of the, the points you just made was not only are you writing a report, but you're also citing your sources so that uh, clearly you can go back then or uh, replicate. Somebody else could look at your research and see maybe some things that you have missed. Uh, but more importantly, they're looking at the sources that you use, which means that you're showing that you have proof, you have documented proof. Exactly. I can't reinforce the importance of citations in, you know, giving people the ability to go back and not only check our work as researchers, but enabling each of us to go back and look at our own work and reevaluate because we continue to grow as genealogists. So the genealogist that each of us is right now is going to be so much better in five years. What if we take these sources and we go back and look at them again in five years? Imagine, Bernice, the perspective we'll have that's different and, you know, just the knowledge that we'll have that we'll be able to reexamine this and maybe actually break our own brick walls five years later. Who knows? Yes, that's right. And plus, you know, if you've listened to, to many of these shows, sometimes I'll have people that will come on and they, they tell their stories. Well, it's also a beginning uh, opportunity for you to start telling your story. You're calling it a resource report, but really, I mean, you're telling your story. You're going through the process. You're putting your timeline together and then laying it out so that family members and others can, can read what you have written and what you have found. Exactly. And Bernice, I really think that that helps us to establish this legacy of our ancestors and to tell their story. And, you know, the research reports, especially the formal ones, they give us a way to really pass down all of this work that we've done to the next generation, for them to add their ideas, to expand upon our ideas. I mean, this is really for the future. As, as we know, genealogy is forever. This is something that lives on beyond our lifetime and beyond anything that we'll see. And, you know, I don't do this just for myself. It's for my future children, my future grandchildren. And, you know, I look forward to seeing what they think of uh, this research that we've done and, you know, make it better and expand on it, um, you know, which kind of leads to the second point. 
um, with some of our brick walls, sometimes we do have to step away for a little while, whether it means going down to Florida for the winter or whatever, and then stepping back and reevaluating what we've done with a new perspective, potentially new ideas, insights, things like that. Sometimes time can give us additional things that we may not have thought of. Oh, that's so right. And stepping away, you said going to Florida. Yes, I would love to do that when we had all of that going snow. Going to New Orleans, Bernice. <laughs> That's right. Going home. That's right. Uh, Family Tree Girl is saying that her research research story is the overall summary of her family and uh, that genealogy is is our life. She's meaning her life and everyone's life when they start doing their genealogy. So it's just great. That's so right. Well, I'm going to stop for one second, take a little break, and we're going to come back and we're continue to to hear what you have to say to us about various uh, genealogy strategies to deal with those brick walls. And then we're going to talk about some brick walls. Okay. Quick break. Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. Uh, You have been listening to Mary Tedesco share problem-solving in genealogy research, strategies and ideas for breaking through your genealogy brick walls. And she has taken us through several strategies and she's going to continue to share with us additional strategies. So Mary, continue on. Thanks, Bernice, I appreciate it. Um, Just another point that I definitely wanna make is the importance of genealogy education. It's the importance of growing continuously as genealogists and knowing that if we continue to learn, if we continue to develop your skills and our skills, that any brick wall or most, I would say, the majority of brick walls have the potential to come down. 
we continue to educate ourselves, whether it be local genealogy seminars, getting involved with the Genealogy Society, attending a conference like Roots Tech, where I recently saw Bernice, or any other genealogy event, it, it doesn't matter what level the lecture may be, you will always learn something. The next conference, the next class you attend, it could spark an idea from one of the brilliant genealogy experts at these conferences that could help you break down this brick wall. And I know that you're a frequenter of conferences, Bernice, as am I. Would you agree that uh, genealogy education is just so important? Oh, you you must uh, have this 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 learning taking place at every opportunity possible, even on Blog Talk Radio. Take advantage of the webinars, take advantage of the conferences, take advantage of your society meetings. Every opportunity that you can learn and grow is uh, right on target with what you're just saying about genealogy education. I totally agree with you, Bernice. And I would also encourage people to go to lectures that honestly don't have anything to do with their personal background. Say, for example, you know, if I am, you know, I don't happen to be African-American, if I go to an African-American lecture, I will learn so much about a different perspective or approach to researching genealogy than if I only exclusively went to genealogy lectures that have to do with my ethnic group. So I would encourage people to go to every ethnic group, Polish, Chinese, African-American, just anything you can think of, because each of these ethnic groups gives us a different perspective on research, a slightly different tweak on how to approach research problems. It's invaluable to go to everything, to experience everything, and you're just going to learn so much, not only about different ethnic groups, but about research approaches. It's really, really essential that we all try and do this. And I'm really glad that you said that because it is important to just become a well-rounded genealogist. You need to know how others approach genealogical research and even some of the challenges that different ethnic groups experience. So you're right, broaden your horizon and go and expand on what others are doing for different groups so that you can become a better genealogist. Exactly. And I recently actually did a post. It was called Learning Italian Genealogy from the Irish. Because honestly, I learned more about Italian genealogy attending Irish research lectures when I was first starting out, because there still aren't a lot of Italian genealogy lectures. So a lot of the early techniques that I developed were just from going not only to Irish genealogy lectures, but you know any other group or nationality or ethnicity to learn how to do genealogy. So don't ever limit yourself to a certain type of education just because you come from here or there or anywhere. Uh, genealogy is really for everybody, and there's something in any lecture that can be brought back home to your own research. So I think that that's such an important point to to make and that we should just, you know, embrace everything and, you know, become well, well-rounded genealogists, just as you said, Bernice. Right. Now, help us understand some of your, what I would consider your biggest challenges uh, in working with clients. Um, so the challenge for me is um, actually stopping when the client commissioned research has ended because I love it and I'm, I'm a constant detective and constantly curious about what comes next. 
I just have a hard time stopping, Bernice, when the client commission <laughs> time is up. I just want to continue with the project forever because I get so attached and very involved in every project that I research because everybody's family has such a fascinating aspect to it. And you get involved in these stories if you spend 50 hours or 100 hours or even five hours on a project. You just want to know more. And I think a lot of genealogists like myself and you as well are just endlessly curious to want to know what's next. Do you find the same thing as well, Bernice? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, definitely. <laughs> but I want to hear, uh, okay, so that's one of your challenges. But give us some brick walls that you've had to deal with. Absolutely. So I had a, a pretty brick, big brick wall in my own research so my great-grandmother, one of my great-grandmothers from Italy, she was born out of wedlock. And one of the questions that my grandfather and my great-aunts were asking me is, who was our grandmother, meaning who was my great-grandmother's mother? They just wanted to know her name. And because she was born out of wedlock, they didn't list her parents' names, which was quite a common practice uh, back in the day in Italy. So her birth certificate had absolutely no information about her parentage whatsoever. So what I did was I went to Italy, this is multiple times, and I started asking around, you know, whose family do you think she was from, where do you think she came from, and so forth. So we were able to get what we thought was her father's name because she had kind of used the last name Davoli. It was kind of like a rumor. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm being very vague here, but we were able through a lot of family lore and local history to narrow it down to either one generation of an, or another one for the father. Now, they wanted to know the mother's name. So I was in a Calabrian church archive, and they had something that was called marital dispensations which is a special permission from the cardinal to get married for whatever reason. In this case, it turns out that my two great-grandparents were actually second cousins, so they needed permission to marry. And the bonus for me is they showed how they were related. There was a little family tree in the file, and it connected my two great-grandparents with all the names. The name of the mother was there, Bernice. The name of the oh, person with a blank wow. birth certificate was there. Can you believe that? That's, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's really what motivated me for years to find this out. Because every time I'd bring up to somebody in the family, you know, I'm, I'm doing genealogy. What do you want to know about? That was the question. You know, what was her name? What was my grandmother's name? And to be able to give that to my grandfather and my two great aunts and to tell them the name of their grandmother, um, it, it was so moving for me and such a special experience. I, I don't know that I'll ever top that, Bernice. That sounds like a, a wonderful opportunity to just jump up and down and do what we call the happy dance. Well, oh, absolutely. I, there was a lot of happy <laughs> dance happening. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, I have a brick wall uh, coming out of the chat room. Not being able to locate a death record, the time frame of the death is 1910 to 1915. Okay. 
Um, I, there's a couple of things for that, Bernice. First of all, what I would say is uh, check the local cemeteries. Is there any way that the person asking the question might know where this person is buried? The cemetery may also have records. Uh, depending on what denomination the person was, I know that certain, you know, Roman Catholic Church, for example, that I do a lot of research in, there are a lot of death records in the church. So there might be a death record for this particular person. Um, also, obituaries in the newspaper do either an online newspaper search or you can actually go to a local public library and search through newspaper microfilm, depending on what's been digitized and what hasn't. Um, that can give an indication of a death. Also, you could look for wills or probate files. If the estate went to probate, it could indicate you know, when the death occurred, and the death certificate may even be in the probate file, depending on what state you're researching. Okay, well, I have another one. Um, let's, let's get okay. it. Another one, located a Civil War registration document, but can't tell if he actually served. Okay, so it's a, it's a, a draft document, I'm assuming, a, a draft list or a, a draft registration of some kind, I'm assuming? Uh, I'm waiting for her to respond to me. Sure, absolutely. Uh, she... I'm waiting. She says yes. <laughs> yes, it is, it is a draft well, registration document. Well, you can always check for uh, a pension file, which are at the National Archives in Washington, D.C. There's fantastic online indexes. Of course, on Family Search, you can check to see if there's a pension file. Also, um, there are military service records, I believe also at the National Archives, but I would have to look up that specifically uh, for soldiers who served. There are also a ton of um, resources available at whatever your local genealogical society is for local area soldiers that may have served in the war. So when I always say to people, whenever in doubt, go local, because the place that will have the most resources on the geographical location you're researching in is the local public library, the regional library in your area. That will have the most information about regimental histories in that area for the Civil War. Just anything that may point to, um, you know, the commander and who was in that uh, division or battalion or whatever, um, those resources definitely do exist, and I would encourage uh, the person asking the question to try and exhaust those. Right, and she uh, posted that no pension record exists. No pension record exists. No, I would um, I would definitely say to try and go local um, if there happens to be maybe um, the the number of the division. I'm not sure you know, what information is available on that particular record because, of course, I haven't seen it. But look up the division, research the division, see if you can find a list of the soldiers' um, roles for the soldiers that may exist. Right. Well, now I have a brick wall for you. I oh, have. Great. Let's Yes, yes, I have a death certificate of uh, my great-grandmother's daughter. And okay. on the death certificate, they ask the question, your mother's maiden name. She posted on, on this, and she's the informant, Pompeii, as her maiden, her mother's maiden name. Okay. When she died in 1944, her husband, my great-grandfather, posted her maiden name as Pompeii. However, huh. 
when all of her children got married and they asked your mother's maiden name, it was Crofton. How do you determine huh. what's the right maiden name? <laughs> that is <laughs> and a in fantastic 18, and, and to go one step further, in 1888, there was a, a purchase of land and she is listed as Crofton huh. as, as her maiden name. Is that that's before the marriage? You're saying, Bernice? Yes. And what's no? It's mentioned. Talking? No, it is mentioned in a land transaction where my great grandfather states that he has only been married one time, and he's okay. been married to Leticia Crofton, maiden name. But she in 1918 stated that her mother's maiden name was Pompeii. And he in 1944 stated that her name, her maiden name was Pompeii. Um, now, very is there confusing. any chance? It is very confusing. Now, I'm, I'm sure you've already looked for this. And depending on the jurisdiction, were there marriage records during that time period, either ecclesiastical in their local church or... Um, in, you know, registered with the county or the city or what have you, depending on the area, would that be a possibility? I have not been able to find a marriage record. Huh. For that's him, a, I was able to find, find information through the archdiocese in Baton Rouge because he was in French settlement. But for her, there's nothing. There's nothing. And there's no chance of any type of birth record or entry for her birth anywhere? Nowhere. Nowhere. Very difficult. Can't That's find a, it. Did she happen to inherit anything upon the death of a, a parent or any information of that or listing a relative and maybe an obituary or something that may have another clue back to, um, you know, her origins or maybe a Pompeii side of the family? Uh, well, I found the, uh, a large number of Pompeys in the community where she grew up. And I also found uh, information in the census that stated that her mother and father were from Virginia. Ah, well, in those types of cases, I love to say, let's take a DNA test and call CC Moore. <laughs> Because, you know, um, genetic genealogy, especially when we run into the types of brick walls um, with maybe, as you're saying, a lack of documentation, either it, the time period it didn't exist or we, we can't locate it or for whatever reason, it, it could be possible to find the link uh, using genetic genealogy. So we definitely can never overlook that tool, as I know you're also an advocate, as am I. Oh, absolutely. Look, I have, uh, and, and of course, I have tested with every DNA company, and I do have a large number of DNA matches on my X chromosome, of which I'm thinking that part of it would be her, because she is my mother's grandmother. So, now, has anyone with the surname Pompeii by any stretch of the no. imagination taken a DNA no. test? See, that no. might be that might be a step to find uh, a, a Pompeii descendant or a series of descendants. You may have to do a sampling because you know you may not know exactly which Pompeis she could have um, been associated with. 
but it, it may help to do that type of somewhat informal sampling of Pompeii's in the area, and you may hit the jackpot with that, quite honestly. That's right. You're right. That's a good suggestion. Well, there's another question coming out of the chat, and it states, my grandmother shared her father's name, but she never met him. She used his name as his surname. My great-grandmother was not married to him. I find a man with his name in the census, but how do I validate he was her father? That is a terrific question. Um, I'm a belt and suspenders genealogist, Bernice. So that means I want all the documentation that's humanly possible to find. When we're trying to eliminate candidates and just be sure that we have the right person, we have to think about statistics here. So do we go plus or minus 10 years with our census search or plus or minus 20 years with the age? Because sometimes ages can be a little funky, especially if somebody was moving around. Um, so we want to make sure there's no statistical possibility that there could be another person. So I would suggest a vital record search. Was there another man with that same name living in the vicinity? Is there anyone else in the census within the surrounding counties even that's of the same name? So then you'll establish a list of candidates once you've done this type of search, this 10-year search or this 20-year search, and then you eliminate them one by one. I hate to use the expression killing it off, Bernice, but sometimes we as genealogists <laughs> use it. So you want to basically trace the other guys with the same name until you can eliminate them and then create basically a proof argument that we would use in genealogy to determine that your guy is the right guy by eliminating all the other guys that aren't the right guy. That's right. That's right. Now, how do you uh, develop a proof argument for four people that are matching on the same chromosome, yet none of these individuals seem to have the same surnames and locations in their family tree, but they're all on the exact same chromosome? Oh, goodness. How long is the program? <laughs> well, as long uh, as you're willing to share. <laughs> well, goodness, that, that is a fantastic question. So, again, the first thing I would call, since DNA is not my primary focus of expertise, is I would call in an expert. I would call in CC or somebody else with an expertise on this particular type of genealogy because as genealogists, we have to know, you know, what is our expertise and what isn't. So the first thing I would do is get very educated on this particular research problem and the approach used to arrive at that. Then I would approach it like any other proof argument, and I would eliminate the possibility of any of the other answers being correct, whether it be using direct evidence, indirect evidence. I mean, there are you know, a million ways to do it. Um, you know, there's a wonderful book by Tom Jones dealing with the genealogical proof standard. I would follow the exact outline in that book to create your proof argument and to approach this problem in a methodical way. Um, when I'm thinking about genealogy research problems, I really approach them like math problems, like puzzle pieces. We're here to reassemble the pieces and put them back together in a meaningful way that'll make sense when we present it to other people. 
Um, so that's basically how I would do it after I called in the expert to get to the bottom of this particular type of research in this case. Okay, and I want to remind everyone that C.C. Moore has been on uh, research at the National Archives and, be and beyond several times. She and Shannon uh, Christmas and I just recently had a show on uh, DNA and genetics genealogy. So it's certainly uh, a field that we have to definitely become more literate in because more and more people are taking DNA tests and really some in some cases, the DNA is driving their research and the paper trail piece of it is kind of going by the wayside. So there are just so many people. We're also seeing uh, Angie Bush and Blaine Bettinger and several other people uh, that can also be of assistance to those that are seeking additional information on uh, genetics genealogy. Exactly. And I'm sure you'll agree, Bernice, it's not a real day as a genealogist if we're not learning something. Uh, so there's constantly something in this field, whether it be another aspect or an ethnic group or another type of genealogy that each of us can just learn more about and just become better genealogists. That's right. Well, give us an example of how uh, individuals uh, come on Genealogy Roadshow and what is your selection process to help individuals who may be interested in, in submitting a problem to a Genealogy Roadshow? Absolutely. So all those interested can go on to our website, which is www.genealogyroadshow.org. And you'll see a button you can click or an icon you can click regarding casting. And basically, that's where you want to tell us your story. Be as detailed as possible. Tell us all about yourself. Make it interesting. Upload a nice, friendly photo of yourself. Smiling would be great. Tell us what your brick wall is. Tell us what your research problem is. So once the selection process begins, the producers will go through and take a peek at each story, and then our research team after that will evaluate the stories to see whether they would work on the Genealogy Roadshow format. And from there, they go through another series, um, a series of evaluations by the producers, by our wonderful team at PBS, until we come up with the final lineup for the show. And the producers know the magical formula for TV. I really don't, but it's a really cool process to watch how these folks with amazing stories come to us. And it's really a privilege, Bernice, to be able to present the final product and also to be involved in the research process. It's just been incredibly cool for me and I know also for Josh and Kenyatta. Okay, so we have someone, I think she was on the Genealogy Roadshow, and she submitted a, a problem for you to think about, help her. Uh, fourth cousin's daughter and father with uh, coniglia. Oh, it's, the, it's moving so fast, I can't read it. Okay, uh, coniglio last name, from Louisiana, Italian. However, she has no Italian family and she's working it out. She's working on it, but just see no Italian in her parents' DNA, her, her DNA. So she's trying to figure out where did that last name come from? 
Well, I have one question. If she submitted it already to Genealogy Roadshow, I'm not able to address the question, Bernice. Because I don't think she has. She's been on it oh, for okay. another problem. <laughs> oh, okay. No, I just I just wanted to verify that because I'm sure, as you understand, we can't answer any questions that have already been submitted to the show, obviously. Oh, no, no. This is, this is not a question that's been submitted to the show. Oh, okay. Perfect. Okay. So as far as the Italian DNA possibly not showing up as Italian DNA when you have a test, that happens all the time. The Italian DNA, um, I guess, subset within the genealogy databases is not currently terribly robust, let's just say. So there's not a huge sample size. And a lot of northern Italian DNA doesn't show up as Italian. For example, I'm 50% Italian. I have two grandparents from Italy. Does that show up on paper as 50% Italian? Absolutely not. It shows up as 39% Italian on most DNA websites. So does that mean my grandparents weren't really Italian? Absolutely not. I have their birth certificates. I have them going back many generations. Northern Italian DNA shows up as something else, whether it be German, French, European, something. It shows up as something else. So uh, just because it's not Italian DNA showing up by one of the testing companies does not mean it's not there. And you could be 100% Italian from Northern Italy, and it may not show up as Italian at all, to be honest. Okay, and they, but let's face it, this DNA is still evolving. So you never know, as they refine the tests, you may start seeing things that you didn't see before. So it's just, I Absolutely. guess, we just kind of, uh, I don't want to say don't take it with a grain of salt, but yes, we need to recognize that it is still evolving. And exactly. I can remember first taking the test many, many years ago, and the results look very different now than they did before. So uh, just keep monitoring your, your, your ancestry composition and okay. see what happens to it. It may, it okay. may change. And as and the sample sizes in these database, databases expand and become more robust, these, these uh, results will definitely evolve. I totally agree with you, Bernice. So we should just stay tuned. And, you know, for anybody that thinks they may or may not be a certain ethnic group or nationality or background, that may in fact be the case. It just may not show up with a particular testing company. So I wouldn't discourage anybody from thinking there are or they're not a particular ethnic group just because it doesn't show up with DNA. Right. So with the genealogy roadshow, and you mentioned that you want individuals to submit to you as much information as possible, then what is the brick uh, wall? Do you all then determine whether you can help solve that brick wall or you just look at it and say, we don't have enough information and so this won't be a good uh, opportunity for us to help this particular uh, person? Well, that's a great question. So if the producers have interest in a particular story and they, we, the research team finds that the applicant has not submitted enough information, somebody will call them up and say, hey, you know, you mentioned your grandmother, but you know, what was her name? You know what I mean? Because sometimes when people are writing, if they're writing fast, they just say, oh, my grandmother, and they don't think to maybe add the name to their application. So we'll just call them and say, oh, what was her name? You know, do you have any additional information? Things like that. 
So there's definitely a dialogue when there needs to be between the producers and the applicants if more information is needed. Uh, so if it's a story that's of interest, they'll definitely take a closer look and get any other information from you that you might need. Right. Now, another uh, brick wall, and I noticed that you are a proud member of the Daughters of the American Revolution. And right, right now, they're accepting DNA, but why DNA? But you still have to have that paper trail to support that. So how would individuals, if they, they actually show that they have DNA that relates to someone and the, they, they will get a, a, a match, put it this way, and the match does show connections to the American Revolution, but they can't figure out the link. What should they do? Uh, well, I would definitely encourage them to follow the exact specific guidelines, which do evolve from time to time um, on the DAR website at dar.org and find out exactly what the specifications are for submitting DNA evidence. And whether it be uh, a paper trail up to the certain point where you lose the connection, I think at this point it's probably on a case-by-case -case basis to be determined by the local membership chair to say, well, this is enough evidence uh, or this is not, and then they, they may send it back to you if it's, it doesn't meet the criteria of the, the current application. Right, and we have a family tree girl just posted that she's a proud daughter through the male line, and she just said, hire someone. <laughs> okay, family exactly. tree girl. <laughs> that, that is an amazing point. You know, never be afraid as professional genealogists or hobbyists or, you know, whatever level of genealogy will be to call in an expert, you know, to call in somebody that may have an additional expertise in whatever area just for a consult or, you know, any type of thing. Um, I do that all the time in my pro professional business, whether it be document retrievals or I just need a second opinion. And I think a lot of professionals do the same. Yes, yes. I mean, it is really difficult. I, I, I have to tell you, I have a DNA match and she has 12 patriots in the family. And she wow. said, Bernice, Bernice, you know, it's, it's here. I can't find it. I cannot find it. And so it, 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 is, it is a challenge to uh, find that, that one person that'll link you to all the other people. Uh, and you're right, hire somebody, that's for sure. <laughs> never, never be afraid to call in a second opinion. It's, it's really a good motto to live by. That's right. Well, we're getting close to the end of the show and it, it went so quickly. Give us some parting words. Yes, help us. I would just like to encourage everybody to say that if you have a brick wall, never, ever give up because there's always a method to get around it, whether it be, as we were just discussing, hiring a professional, even for a consult or some work on certain aspects of the project, to continue to educate yourself through genealogy education to become better at what you're doing whether it be to step away, to go to New Orleans for the weekend or the week, step away from that research problem, get a new perspective, <coughs> excuse me, or to create a formal research report to give to your friends and family to evaluate your findings to date, to really hone in on what might be the next step. 
or we can even try genealogy crowdsourcing, posting it on Facebook, talking to our local genealogy society about that, asking for an opinion from a colleague or a friend that may be really good at genealogy, creating a timeline for your ancestor. Excel, again, is a very, very powerful tool. Lay out every aspect of the life of your ancestor. Get to the bottom of it. Cast a wider net. You know, check the fan club. Check everybody around. And also, always operate with a research plan. Go into it methodically. Research methodically. Keep a research log with careful notes of what you've done so that you can go back and do new things. Um, Bernice, there are these and a hundred other ideas to help people conquer their brick walls. But the most important thing is attitude. It's your outlook. Am I going to solve these brick walls? The answer is, yes, I am. That's right. And then you're right. That attitude makes all the difference in the world. And you're right. Have this can-do attitude. You can do it. You will do it. And, you know, we have uh, Shelly Murphy in the chat room, and Shelly Murphy is really good at telling people to keep asking the question, so what? You found this document, so what? And until you get everything answered. So, Mary, you have just nailed it for us. And uh, those in the chat room, I hope you've gained new knowledge tonight. And just keep learning continue to learn as Mary has suggested. So everyone, I want to thank you so much for tuning in tonight. And thank you so much, Mary. And look, everyone, we're not going to have a show this Thursday, nor next Thursday, but join me in two weeks and I'll have a whole new April lineup. So good evening, everyone. And thank you so much, Mary, for joining me. And remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and AfroGenius.com Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday morning. Thank you so much for joining research at the National Archives and beyond blog talk radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. And my website is www.geniebroots.com. I look forward to you all joining me in three weeks. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night. Good night, Mary. Good night. Thanks, Bernice. Good night. Thanks, Bernice. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.